This is Vital Signs, a podcast about cutting-edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. And today we have uh, Bob Kocher on the podcast, a real renaissance man, I feel, of healthcare. You know, he's a physician. He helped write the Affordable Care Act and, and high tech. Uh, he now kind of incubates and invests in businesses at Venrock. Nikhil, it makes us feel like we're not, uh, we're not super busy, right? This was a huge fanboy moment for me. I have admired Bob's work from afar for a very long time. Obviously, like you said, he's has this like very long resume of extremely awesome healthcare accomplishments. The one thing that I really respect about Bob is that he had this whole notion at the beginning of the Affordable Care Act where he wrote, as he told us, his most uh, the most commented JAMA editorial or, or Annals editorial where he talked about provider consolidation being good and then wrote a follow-up editorial later saying he was wrong. How many people do you know that you know go back to revisit their old beliefs? One thing that's really interesting about his career is you know you now have things that he did very prominently in you know the early 2000s that you know, have a decade plus of, of time to reflect on them. So whether that's the Affordable Care Act and what he would have done differently, or even that famous piece he wrote on, on kind of where every healthcare dollar flows through the system while at McKinsey that uh, I think you and I see in literally every deck that we look at, you know, it's, it's really interesting <laughs> to be able to look back at that like a decade plus later. Yeah, my career span is basically only four years long now. So I'm excited when I can look back and find out how wrong I was about everything. <laughs> and I think, you know, one thing I particularly enjoyed was how he looked at health systems. And I think we all kind of know that the health systems to be of the future are going to look different than they are today. But one thing that I've often struggled with is how do we actually get there? It doesn't feel like today things are any different than the uh, or, or, or changing in any way. And I thought he had a really interesting kind of point about how we'd get to kind of that increased productivity, but also kind of different scope of what systems do and what that evolution looks like over the next few decades. Yeah, I, I really like the, the part where we're talking a little bit about some of the underlying hypotheses that they believed at the, when they were kind of coming up with the Affordable Care Act and some of the stuff that he thought he would change, like you know, pump more money into it because it would have lowered sort of more of the downstream costs that were associated. But uh, I learned a lot from this podcast. I mean, there's a lot of like really specific, tangible things that I never knew about. And very cool to hear from someone who has kind of been inside the main rooms where this stuff gets decided. Totally. Well, uh, I hope everyone enjoys this episode. And yeah, without further ado, we'll we'll take it to Bob. So today on Vital Signs, uh, we're super excited to have Dr. Bob Kocher joining us. Bob's had a really interesting, wide-ranging career in healthcare, touching literally uh, pretty much every part we cover here on Vital Signs. Started off as uh, an MD, you know, an internal medicine residency. Then he went over to McKinsey, where he was a partner and led the McKinsey Global Institute's healthcare practice, uh, wrote some interesting pieces we'll be digging into, and then switched over to the Obama administration, where he helped write the Affordable Care Act, the High Tech Act, and now is over at Venrock, where he's a board member and is invested in uh, who's who's of healthcare companies we all know, Devoted Health, Verta, Allidade, Lyra. Um, and is also an adjunct professor over at Stanford Med School. So a really interesting career. I'm sure it will be a very wide-ranging conversation. Bob, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jacob. It's really great to be here, and thanks to Kill also for having me. For sure. I feel like uh, when I see your, your resume, I have to wonder, like, do you just get bored of every you know slice and then you just decide to jump to the new one? Or My wife would say I, I'm good at like quitting jobs every two years. And so <laughs> one of the fun parts of my current job is I spend most of my time starting companies. And I, you know, usually work at them for the first two years and, you know, and hire people who are way better than me and then graduate to being on the board. But I, I like the variety. And so, yeah, I do, I do change a bunch. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun mix. And I feel like, you know, maybe to, to just start for listeners, I'm sure they're all interested how you came on this path and, you know, what led you, you know, the consulting route first, then to the policy side and then to venture and, and kind of company incubation after that. Yeah, through no planning on my part is the answer. So my parents are really lovely, but very granola people up in Seattle. And 
I, like everybody in my high school, went to the University of Washington when I graduated. And my mom and dad were like, now that you're in college, you can do whatever is interesting. And I took that kind of literally. At that time, there was like one MacArthur Genius Award fellow, like winner. And he happened to be a zoologist who studied golden mantle ground squirrel hibernation. And so I went down to his office as a freshman, sixth floor of Kincaid Hall, which is the far bottom corner of campus where no one ever goes. And said, hey, can I learn about your research? And he was so surprised someone came. He was like, I can give you a job. And so began working with him. And a couple of years later, I had a degree in zoology, <laughs> for which there is no recruiting. Um, there's no jobs. And so I then did what all people do, which is I went to school more. So I, got, I then went another year and got a degree in political science and game theory. And then there was also no jobs. And so then I took the LSAT and the MCAT that are in the MCAT. So I went to medical school. I can't wait for this all to come together where, like, we figure out how, like, everything you do now is related to zoology, game theory, well, I mean, you know, I do all think this on top. The success of the eastern ground squirrel over the western ground squirrel, which are the black ones are beating out over the gray ones, is, like, a really big battle that I'm watching carefully. But um, <laughs> my thinking at the time was, okay, I'll become a doctor, and Seattle, where I grew up, has a really good cancer research place called Fred Hatch Cancer Research Institute, which was kind of the pioneer in bone marrow transplants in the world. And like, that seemed really interesting. So I thought maybe I would be a doctor and go back and work there. And so I, I went to medical school. I did some science for a while at Howard Hughes and then did medicine. And I began an oncology fellowship at Dana-Farber in Boston, um, which is a wonderful place to be trained. And kind of as I was beginning that, I began to have qualms about like, the future as, as an oncologist, in part because the professors who were teaching me, who were brilliant people, weren't very happy. They didn't love their jobs. And I was like, wow, if you're a professor at Harvard Medical School and you're unhappy, like, is anybody happy? Like, it seems like that's sort of as good as it can get. And they were always complaining about, like, getting their grants and how terrible it was. And when you work inside these hospitals, which are super famous, I mean, the Mass General Hospital, the Brigham Women's Hospital, Bethesda's, I mean, these are like treasures on the earth. They are incredible places. But when you work inside of them, you're like, wow, it's really unorganized. There's a bunch of stuff that just doesn't happen right. Um, while I was there, we had a horrible medical error where a person died from a chemotherapy overdose. And like, unlike when a Boeing airplane crashes and like they all get grounded and they get fit, like the hospitals just kind of keep going. They don't, they don't fix themselves. And so as I was doing this training, I, I began to think, wow, like I kind of want to make the hospital work better. Like, I feel like it was the heroic work of the people in the hospital that results in patients getting just extraordinary care. But so often it was because somebody like ran up five flights of stairs to the lab to get the lab to run a test or ran a mile down the long hallway um, to find the neuroradiologist to read a study or like overcame obstacles. And that didn't seem like a good idea. And so I then was like, I think I want to leave my fellowship and learn how to run a hospital. I asked the person running the hospital at the time how to get that job. And he looked at me with this look of amusement of like, who are you? Like, why, like what are you talking about? And uh, it's, it's Jim Mongan, who like is a brilliant hospital leader. And he said I had to go get business training because I don't know anything about business. And that was true. I knew nothing about business. And he said to go to HBS. I went home and announced to my wife that I was going to go to HBS. And she looked at me with this look <laughs> like, I'm going to kill you. Like, you cannot. School again. <laughs> like, the life to which I want to become entitled is not happening if you go take out $500,000 in debt. And so um, she said no. She had just gotten an MBA and also thought that MBAs were silly. And so I went back to Jim Mongan and said, my wife won't let me go to HBS, like, what's plan B? I used to go to McKinsey, and I was a little scared at this point to ask him, like, what that was. But so I just said, thank you, and left. And then I Googled <laughs> it, and I couldn't tell, like, what it was, because it says it's a consultancy. Uh, what the heck is that? And I was in the emergency room at the Brigham. I was being yelled at by a drunk 
patient who happened to have been a BU student who like got taken to the emergency room and it was a Friday night and I was like, all right, <laughs> I need to change. So I, I, I went to McKinsey.com slash careers applied and magically they caged me. This was back when they were pagers, like, and for an interview. And, and so I interviewed, they gave me a case. I somehow made it through and they hired me. And then when I got there, I said, I want to learn how to run hospitals. And they looked at me like, well, that's not what we do here. Like you made a big mistake. And I said, no, I'm sorry. And they said, great. Um, you'll go where we tell you. And so I then moved to Doha, Qatar. And we spent a year living in the Middle East, working with hospitals all around the Gulf region. And then I went to India for six months and worked in Chennai. Then I went to Singapore. Ended up going to 22 countries over the next four years to work with hospitals. And when you do that, you discover that all hospitals are kind of screwed up. Like, nobody's figured out how to, like, pay for health in a way that makes it, like, just awesome, like, efficient and good. So that got me on the path of, okay, like, we should try to understand why that is. And so... I, I then very fortunately was able to, to do kind of economics research at McKinsey and learn how to do economics. And we ended up first studying a bunch of other countries and comparing them to the U.S. And you kind of learn that nobody's awesome, but they all there's little pearls everywhere. Uh, and then we focused on the U.S. because the U.S. just spends an ungodly amount of money. And in 2004, when we began doing that work, nobody actually knew how much we spent in total and where it all went. It was just sort of a sense of like, it's massive and there's this river and stuff happens and but health doesn't seem to be getting better and like where's it all going and so we, we did the first big study of where every dollar went in the u.s healthcare system and also showed who made all the money it wasn't obvious like where the profits were being made and like sort of where the waste was so then we counted up like where the waste was and then the last part of that work was well how would you if you wanted it to be more productive like how would you pay differently and the answer to health policy always is like you need to cover more people and then make it more affordable, but then you have to make the system itself intrinsically more productive or we can't afford it. And so we did a bunch of, you know, thinking about how you redesign the economic incentives. And then I had the serendipity and privilege of like working in that in government. That was in part because the work that I did at McKinsey was peer reviewed by really good people who, who knew what they were talking about. And the peer reviewers of that work was Larry Summers, who ended up to lead the economic team at the White House. And then Peter Orzag, who led OMB and Zeke Emanuel, who like leads everything else. And so... And so we worked together closely for several years. And so when Obama won, I had the privilege of getting to join in part because we worked together on this topic for a while. And then coming to Venrock was completely lucky. I worked with this guy named Todd Park, who's brilliant. He founded Athena Health and Devoted. He was the CTO for the U.S. My job was to recruit him into government. So I met him during the transition for Obama-Biden. And he was this amazing guy who brings joy to everything and is and remarkable. And his wife said he couldn't go into government because he had a job and a family and lived in California. And my job was to call him every day to tell him to come. And finally, on March 18th um, of 2009, he said, okay. And he said, I'd come for a year. He then came and stayed for the entire <laughs> seven more years. <laughs> and then when I was leaving government after two years, because I did not make it as long as him, I was having lunch with him and asked him like, what I should do next, because I didn't want to go back to McKinsey because the incumbents weren't super psyched about changing. And I wanted to work with people that thought the Affordable Care Act was good and were ready to move forward. So Todd said, hey, you should go to venture capital. I looked at him with a look of like, that's silly because I don't know what that is. Never met one. Um, and the only companies I've worked at before were McKinsey and Harvard. So neither are entrepreneurial growth businesses. He said, no, you'd be great. And he called Brian Roberts, who was Venerock, and told Brian to meet me. And I think Brian was thought it was silly, but he met me. And um, we liked each other a bunch. And he said, well, why didn't you come give us a shot? So I then moved up to California. Now this is 10 years ago. And joined Venerock. And after a year and a half of meeting entrepreneurs, not loving the ideas, Brian was like, well, why don't you just start stuff? If you don't like anything you're seeing, well, start some stuff that's better. 
And so then I began the whole, you know, finding smart people and kind of co-founding businesses together. The first one was called Zenefits, which was a kind of a, an HRIS platform to help employers offer benefits and payroll. It was super successful and also kind of infamous. And then Doctor on Demand um, was the next one we worked on. Um, it's been really fun. And I, I love the figuring out like what's a problem that can be solved and what's the what's the business model that allows you to do it. And I love the team assembly of finding like, the right mixture of experience and, and like awesome other skills to bring to it. So that's why I've been doing sense. But the, the, the reason I tell you the story this way is that you can understand there was no plan. It was always about learning. And I've had been blessed to work with really smart people who've taught me a lot. The whole theme, I guess, is like, I want to make healthcare work better because, I mean, we all need it and it needs to work better. But there was no, like, like, I, like, I don't know what I'm doing next year. Like, you know, right now I'm starting a really interesting business with a wonderful entrepreneur named Rahul Raj Kumar, who probably you both know, who worked at CMMI and are kind of blue. And, like, you know, he's had this vision of delivering, like, awesome care for very complex patients. And so... I spent the last year with him brainstorming, well, how do you do it? Like, like what's, how do we, how do we build a business to do that thing? And I love that. Like, there's nothing that makes me happier than like, than seeing these things become a, become real. Yeah. I feel like you're a very zero one person. It's like, it doesn't exist. You, you will it into existence. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then there's people who are better than me at making it better. You, you know, I think I'm good at hiring people and I'm good at teaching. And I think that what the fun part is watching other people like, take the idea and make it better. I mean, Devoted Health, I helped start it and was chief medical officer, um, hired a, a young <laughs> doctor named Neil Wagle, who's fucking amazing, who took all the concepts that I helped start it and made them like so much better than they would ever have been if I were doing it. And so when I do my one-on-ones with him now, like I just, I get chills in my, in my spine because it's like, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's better. So I love I love seeing that happen, and I know that it's feel better than me at, at that part. But I'm good at getting it started. Um, that's awesome. Well, I feel like we could go deeper down like any one of these slices, but I wanted to start with the McKinsey study because it's now infamous, right? Uh, what do you mean? I think it's famous, not infamous. <laughs> well, you, you are you are the reason you are the reason that every startup pitch deck now starts with. I know it's, it's like they me. It's cool. I was actually I actually re looked at it today. Uh, and the opening line is something along the lines of like the healthcare is like a two trillion dollar business, and it's you know we have to figure out why it's growing so fast. I'm like two trillion, like I it was two point six trillion, two point six, now it's three. Yeah, but so when you did that study, we, like you said, we didn't really have a sense of where the money was going in healthcare. I'm curious, like as you started pouring through the numbers, like what surprised you about where you saw money was flowing, and I guess you know. If you think about when you did the study then to today, like what things are the same and what things are different compared to then and now? <laughs> it's more the same than different. Um, I'm sure. I think some of the big surprises are, you know, we talk a lot about drug prices being ridiculously expensive, and they are, but most of the money is going to health systems. And so people don't realize like that local hospital is like a really expensive asset and it better be good and it's usually not as good as it should be, is one. Number two, Chronic disease outpatient care is like, there's so, we do so much of it, we do more of it than other countries, it costs more. But when you slice U.S. spending, like half of it is basically going to a health system. And of that, most of that is going to kind of outpatient, like chronic care. It's sort of one big lesson. And while drugs are super expensive, depending on what segment of the you know health system you're in, it's sort of 5 to 15%. Like, and so you could cut it by half and it 
just doesn't change spending very much. It was sort of a big surprise. Um, the margins in drugs are 80, or 80 to 90 percent. So, I mean, like, it's not we, like the prices are probably too high in a in a market. But like there's less juice there than I thought. Another one's the health system. It's where most of the money goes, but they but they really don't make any money. And so like everybody besides drug makers, everybody else has a business that's really crappy where the profits are sort of two, one, five percent. Like there, there's no money left over. So then you're left with the problem of, wow, it's really expensive and they make no money. You have to then work on people. You have to get more productivity here. And every year up until the really up until the COVID pandemic, nearly every month there was hiring, net hiring in hospitals and insurance companies. And that means that you're not getting productivity generally because demand didn't change that much. And so you have a real people problem. And when you compare the U.S. to other countries, we tend to have a lot more hospitals and they're small. And that's not that's pretty inefficient. And part of that goes to the Interstate Highway Act, where we decided that every American should live within 30 minutes of a hospital. But that means you have a lot of underutilized hospitals with people inside of them. So you have a, a structurally pretty inefficient system. Another thing that we were studying, you know, was what's the cost to American healthcare of having multiple payers? You know, there's been a theme of should there be a single payer or a public plan? And so we you know, tried to calculate, like, what is the excess cost of having multiple payers versus the benefit? And the excess cost at that time was $145 billion a year. It's going to be a little more now. But it was sort of less than I had expected, sort of the, at least the way we counted it, the cost of having multiple payers. And so you could talk yourself into thinking that multiple payers leads to innovation and, you know, some of them will adopt new things earlier. And so the, like, you can you can kind of make it be it's not, it's not an easy argument to sort of say a single payer is going to be a lot more efficient, although Medicare, of course, has lower admin. And then I guess the last thing that was super interesting is we had great data when, when doctors start owning the supply, how their utilization changes. And so when a doctor buys a, an x-ray machine or a CAT scanner or runs an endoscopy clinic, like they use a lot more of it. So you can see kind of before and after. Um, and so it was just fascinating to see how supply induces demand in healthcare. Like it's not just kind of another example of it not being a traditional market. Similarly, when you change the payments for something, if you lower the reimbursement by something, um, the units of that tend to go up to offset the revenue loss. So there was good examples of that in radiology where like about the time of the study, Medicare cut rates for certain types of studies and then the numbers of them just went up to offset the revenue loss. So you see like really interesting effects like that. Um, you see that encoding software the, the disappearance of UTIs being replaced with sepsis. You know, sepsis is reimbursed at 30000 bucks roughly at the time, and UTIs like at ten. And so you just see, like, sort of, like, really interesting economic things that happen that show the kind of profit maximization at every level. And almost never was it true that the profits are maximized by delivering better care to people from some sort of, like, outcome measure or more productive care. Nor did you ever see people move very much based upon the price that they paid out of pocket or based upon benefit designs. Um, we did these cool geo maps that showed that people got 95% of their health care, this was 2005, but it was the same, within five miles of their house. And so, like, there, there's notions of centers of excellence or, like, market validity just didn't work. And, and that's part of the problem today, which is that we don't have lots of competition because the way antitrust works is it's a much bigger unit using what's called a Herfindahl index, which means that when we look at hospital mergers and things working in big areas, even though people don't actually use a big area to get their supply. So we showed all these things. And the question was, how has it changed? Not much. I mean, the economics are kind of the same. We're mostly still in fee for service. We mostly have health systems taking the money. We mostly have not a lot of competition. And so at a big 
you know, our, our disease outcomes and things aren't sort of at a macro level better. Our life expectancy is a little worse thanks to COVID. So it hasn't changed too much. Um, now, what has changed is more Americans are, are covered with insurance. So we have about 50 million more people covered with insurance. People aren't going bankrupt from health care, certainly as much as they were before. Um, if you're lower income, it's much more affordable with both premium subsidies and, and, and cost-sharing subsidies. So like we've done, we've done a good job on the demand side, I think, at letting there be more demand and having that demand be more affordable. On the supply side, we haven't, we haven't accomplished as much as I would have hoped on making it more productive and affordable. Like We still have real problems with medical inflation. And we haven't improved quality as much as I would have hoped. Now, there's lots of bright spots. I mean, in Medicare Advantage, there's some just extraordinary care being delivered by captive providers. Um, in every city in the country, there's like examples of like local providers that do it really, really well. But like we haven't at scale sort of moved, you know, improved it as much as I would have hoped. You know, a big part of the of, it, it, it's super interesting overview because I think a big part of the answer you mentioned is is obviously the role of health systems and consolidation and you know in 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 some of this cost and a lot of the dollars flowing there even if a lot of the margin isn't you know one thing one theme that's kind of come up I feel like in our episodes previously has been you know around the role these systems play and kind of two different views of it right I think a lot of folks we've had on who are building risk based businesses you know they'll say look our number one goal is just getting <laughs> avoiding these hospitals whether it's like, obviously there's avoiding hospitalizations but also just like avoiding that as a site of care and that's a huge cost driver, you know, or a huge savings lever for, for a lot of these risk-based companies. And then, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, we had Sachin Jain on the show, and I thought he had a really interesting counter-perspective, which was actually, he's like, I think the systems are the only one that can do value-based care. The problem you run into with all these other folks is there's such silos that, you know, you might see a patient, but then they have to get dialysis, and that's not on your four walls, and, and they're really the only ones that, that kind of have a, a play forward here. You know, I know your views have kind of changed on this over time, and I think you've, you've written about this before, about the role of systems, but curious kind of, you know, where you see these systems, you know, these large systems uh, going, going forward. And, you know, given what we talked about, that they have low margins to begin with, you know, if there is kind of volume that's taken away, where where that all leads? <laughs> that's like a whole podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, I wrote a, um, this is infamous, not famous. I wrote an infamous <laughs> Panels of Internal Medicine article with Zeke Emanuel and Nancy Antiparo in 2010 that basically said that there should be a lot of consolidation because of the Affordable Care Act, because um, the people that will make the most money in risk will be those who can control all the care to really achieve productivity benefits and quality benefits by being a system. So I said there'll be more large systems and they're going to be stronger and argue that that is good. Um, that article elicited several thousand negative comments, like like it broke the record, I think, for annals at the time for like least liked article ever written. I've never seen um, someone get ratioed on annals. That's like a first. Like usually it only happens on Twitter. It's yeah, impressive. no, this was, this was like I really upset people. Um, and and I believed, I mean, because I, I, I had this this hope that you would have like large systems be able to do, you know, group visits where you like like where you bring specialists and the primary doctor together or patient with a suspicious breast lump comes into the clinic and we biopsy it and excise it today and, you know, and take care of it. So like all done in one visit or where coordinated care for mental health care and primary care can be done really at scale. Like, and, and so in theory, you could have a lot of, you know, new versions of things like, you know, Geisinger and Mountain and Kaiser that takes risk and redesigns itself. And by having all the pieces, you can design it in really cool ways. The problem is that that's a lot harder than raising prices. And so in reality, what happened was most of the systems didn't really try to redesign themselves. 
Most of them made a little optionality bet to see what an ACO would feel like, and they didn't like it, so they didn't scale it, and they said, let's do more fee-for-service stuff. And so when you look at, like, the ACO numbers, I mean, I always found it just stunning. How is the Johns Hopkins, which U.S. News says every year as the number one hospital in the country, can't manage to save money in an ACO when the Allidade Delaware ACO is number one in the country, like, like with a bunch of independent doctors? So... It means that it makes no sense for them to do it. Like the, the economics incentives don't work. And when you push down further on it, I think the problem is is that in all value-based payment models, there are zero-sum things, basically. And so the savings come from not using an ER in a hospital as much. They save, they come from not using post-acute care as much. And they come from fewer referral specialists. And the way you do that is you tell the Premica doctor to do more. You say, like, I want you to do higher-level care, more of it, see people more often, and and it's more work for the PCP. And the PCP then says, well, pay me. Like, I, I'm doing more work. I, I earn more money. But that money is money that used to go <laughs> to these other people. And when you all work under one roof, like, nobody likes giving up their money. And so you have a real incentive problem. And you just, it's, you're better off not to do it. So you just stay in the old model. Where if you're independent of that, you, you love it. And you, like, you're stealing money from the health system to pay your PCPs more. And so... I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which has the unfortunate title of how it's titles How I Was Wrong About Obamacare, which is not what the article's about. I did not write the title, where we make the point that these small independent ACOs are cr- crushed it and the health systems didn't. And we shouldn't count on health systems to change because they're fundamentally like misaligned to do it. And I think the way we need to help health systems evolve is to have them figure out how to pay their they're doctors differently. Most doctors who work at health systems who are specialists get paid on what's called RBUs, which are basically like a unit of activity. And the more of them they do, the more money they make. And they, they probably have a minimum number they have to do to sort of keep their job. They're sort of a target for them. They get to like sort of get their full comp and then they get a bonus if they do more. And that's how almost every specialist is paid in the country. We have to change that. If we give them a salary, like the VA does, like, well, then they do, they do a lot less. And the question is, what's the right way to pay them to get them to do the right amount of stuff? Because <laughs> you don't want to have waiting times by having them not be incentivized, but you don't want to do as much as we're doing today. And for hospitals, we have to figure out how to help them get out of this quandary. I think the way for that to happen is to basically shift their business model from, again, activity-based to where they're getting a subscription payment from a health plan or from a risk bearer. Where you go to them and say, last year, I bought 1,000 beds from you. I'll pay you that amount divided by 12 monthly for my volume. And then you hospital have an incentive to figure out how you want to take care of them. If you want to do it in the home, you want to do it on the outpatient basis, you do it, but you get the you get the money. I think you have to give them some model like that so they can sort of get out of the I need to fill the bed and make it higher acuity. I think hospitals ultimately become ICUs and ORs. I think there's no way we're doing we're doing those things outside of like really sophisticated facilities. And and they do that amazingly well. I would never start a company to try to do ICU in the home. There's no way we're ever gonna do it as well as a hospital, you know, OR. You know, freestanding ORs can do some things, but they're not going to do like a Whipple. And so I think hospitals should do those really high acuity things and they should figure out how to have general medical admissions be done in the, you know, in your home or in the community. But I think we have to give them a payment model that works for them to do that. And the current ones don't, don't make them win. And so we have to come up with a better model. To me, to me, the incentive problem is, is super hard because nobody wants, there's no person that will agree to lowering their salary willingly. And so you have to you have to come up with some system around that. And right now, if you try to get a risk-based models for health systems, specialists 
I can't make as much money. Totally. No, I mean, I guess I'm curious, you know, uh, like intellectually, that model makes so much sense. You're obviously probably you know, on the ground with this all the time. Like, does it feel like we're going to to make that transition? So I can kind of see it, it makes kind of practical sense if you were designing a system, you know, at the same time, to your point, there's, there's plenty of folks that benefit from the current model. I think, you know, a lot of these systems are pretty powerful politically in their own communities or big employers. Like, does it actually feel like there's some sort of inflection point yet of making that transition? Or do you think we kind of continue, you know, business as usual for the next like 10, 20 years? I'm also kind of curious, like who actually helps make this transition, right? On the one hand, you have these, you have private payers that potentially can do it, especially like if they have really tight control on the PCP relationship, but, or is it the government? Like, you know, I, I guess there's multiple people that can try to transition us to that system, but I'm curious, yeah. like who might pra- practically do it. I think I think it's, it's 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 the kind of thing where I don't see it changing tomorrow, but in fifty years I think it will have happened. I don't think we're that close to sort of the a big inflection, to be honest. I think it will only come under a, under much more economic stress. Now stresses are in, are increasing a bunch for particularly for hospitals and and insurance companies, but and as we head into higher interest rates, maybe a recession. You, you know, you might you might see them willing to sort of revisit things that have been hard to revisit. But, you know, especially doctor income for those that are employed there is a really hard one to get to. I think it's not acutely happening. I think it might happen from like the the large risk bearing groups might begin to go to the hospital, and say, like, I'm going to offer you effectively subcapitation, but you know, a subscription and will you take it? And in places like Florida, Southern California, you might have hospitals that are that are weak enough that they would be willing to take that deal. In Boston, as an example, there's a famous medical group called Atrius, which is now part of Optum, and um, they would alternate between the Beth Israel and the Brigham and say, like, I'm going to bring you a fixed amount of volume I want, like, effectively to run it myself, staff it myself, and I'll rent it from you. And since both hospitals had extra beds, they would bid and, you know, they would alternate every now and then who would give them a better deal. I think you could start seeing that happen more and more and more, and and over time, the hospital might convert to more of a system where it's renting itself to, to you know, to these groups, because today... These groups have their own hospital lists, and they sort of have their own rules, and and so that might be the path on which it goes. But it's going to then be very different across the country because there's going to be very different penetration of that type of care model. The insurance companies have a really hard time because the generally the employers who are self-insured aren't willing to tell their to limit choice of their workers. And so if you were to do a subscription agreement with a hospital and the, and it's not the convenient one to the employee, it's hard to imagine today an employer telling them they have to you know drive a half an hour to a hospital that's not close to them. And so I'm not convinced that commercial insurance companies will do it. I think it will happen more in a Medicare-type world. And, like, you know, the other way to fix the specialist problem is to have fewer specialists. So as they retire, you cannot replace them. And over time, you can get to where, in a value-based arrangement, that person is still doing the same number of RVEs, but across a bigger, bigger denominator of patients. The morbid way to think about this is naturally a lot of people are leaving medicine because of how burnt out they are and how where, how many weird secondary effects there are from COVID. And so we're going to have to become more productive, right? Like, we yeah. don't have a choice because we have just less labor. I remember talking to a company that was telling me that now they have to compete with like Amazon warehouses as like a place for medical assistance because the Amazon warehouses pay more for medical assistance. So now you have these, you have productivity from other sectors actually pulling away from healthcare. So yeah, we have no choice but to, to get more productive. Yeah, which which is ultimately how you're going to get to the new model is through no choice. That's how you get there. And so, you know, labor supply constraints, you know, will lead you to think differently. I mean, you'd be happy to, if you're a specialist and there's fewer of you, you'd be happy to be in a capitated model because you actually can't do all the RVUs that are out there. So 
it's going to happen in those, but it'll be more micro than macro. I think it's going to be like local market and probably Medicare will be the Medicare advantage and Medicare will be sort of the, the tip of the spear. Awesome. Um, a super interesting conversation. You know, I, I guess kind of like switching gears, I'd be curious, you know, uh, you kind of started doing these these annual predictions, I feel like, at Ben Rockley before Gosh. it was it was just a rite of passage for every VC to have to opine on their annual predictions. And I know, so, and then Sachin like copied could... us. <laughs> <laughs> now everybody's copied it. You really kicked off the uh, the entire process. Um, but I'm sure... It. That's how you know yeah, that. Yeah. When the news Both of us writers do them. start doing yeah. it, it's, 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 we really They just the let show. all the riffraff uh, release them. Democratization of the internet. Real disaster. Exactly. Um, but I, you, I guess, you know, you've obviously had a lot to look back on. I'm curious, as, as you look back on those predictions, you know, any you think that you look back on, you're like, I was completely, you know, we, we saw this, you know, completely early. And then other ones you look back on, you're like, yeah, we really whiffed on, on that. Well, thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> so the, these predictions first, like, they shouldn't be taken too seriously. It's it's like what I think about at Thanksgiving every year, and then I write it, and then I said to Brian, and he adds one or two or something. But like it, it's like it's like what I'm doing on Black Friday because I like don't need to go shopping. <laughs> and so, like one prediction that you know we we made we made ever, so often that we made it an evergreen prediction, which is that nothing will happen on drug pricing, and you know, and then this year something kind of did. So, the Inflation Reduction Act, to my surprise has for the first time ever the federal government negotiating prices for 10 drugs and that's super cool um i hope we do a good job and hopefully that's effective so i guess i whiffed on that because i i didn't i didn't think the politics was going to allow it to happen well you were right many years on it i guess well i know i got, I got like nine years of right but, <laughs> but, but it was interesting to me because the politics of drug pricing is really tough because there was a bipartisan group of senators that didn't want it to happen and so it's interesting to me that the other stuff in the Inflation Reduction Act sort of overcame the entrenched opposition to it. Like, we, we looked at Medicare negotiations under the Affordable Care Act, and, like, no possibility that that could have passed. And it had been explored since by even the Trump people tried. Like, they couldn't do it. So I thought that was an interesting thing that changed. Uh, and it's a, it's going to be interesting to see how it happens. Um, there's a lot of concerns about how it may or may, may or may not or impact, like, how many drugs are developed and things. And so I'll be fascinated to see, like, is there a negative cost on on things that are developed or not. Um, CBO says there'll be a small one, drug companies says there'll be a big negative impact. Like, I'm not sure. I do think that we have the ability to use the current drugs we have so much more effectively that a lot of lives can be saved without new drugs by just delivering care better. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Another one we got terribly wrong this year is, you know, we wrote the digital health IPOs will be even better than in 2021 because in 2021, a bunch of them kind of sucked. Now this year, there's been like none because the market closed. We also said the digital health M&A volume would, would double. There'll be a lot of M&A, but it's not going to be of, of high value. It's going to be more distressed type M&A, not high-priced ones. Now, when we add it all up, that, that one might not be wrong because, like, Signify for $8 billion and maybe Kano and, like, Walgreens just bought cares. Like, so maybe, but it's not the market that I'd expected. I was thinking it'd be more a different, a little bit different market. You know, we, we, we've been right about Theranos and Agilehome, like, multiple years in a row. Like, we said Theranos was, like, obviously not going to work before people knew it wasn't going to work. Um, we were like, Agilehome doesn't work well enough to be paid for. Um, and, of course, like, that was right. So, on those, I think we were pretty smart. I do respect that you started with the wrong ones first. Usually, most people put their best foot forward, but I respect. Well, I mean, I mean, we weirdly, like, most years we get five or six of them right, and they're like, they're they're not meant to be like uh, like the reason why people read the article is I try to make them non obvious I don't I don't like say obvious stuff like 
Um, and so I, I feel like batting like 50% is pretty good. <laughs> so. It is pretty good. It's also also about the magnitude in which you're right and wrong, right? <laughs> that's the that's the key uh, key part of this. I, I'm like I feel like our listeners will get very mad at us if we don't talk a little bit about the ACA, since obviously sure. it's, it's such a core part of it. I'm I'm now that we're like you know what 14 years later into the experiment. I'm curious now that like you've we've seen some of the stuff play out. Like, what were some of the hypotheses that you were kind of basing, like when you were thinking when you were sort of discussing and and, and passing the ACA, like. What are some of the hypotheses that you think you sort of got right? And if you were to redo it all again, like what things would you maybe either try to include in it or put a higher emphasis on, et cetera? Because now we have some some data to say like what worked, what didn't, et cetera. Yeah. I think we got right the premise that the way to do healthcare policy legislation is to combine sort of all of it together. So by itself, it's not there's not enough support to change just coverage or just cost or just quality. I think the construction of it was smart to sort of say to progressives, like, we're going to give you a lot more people covered and we're going to, you know, expand Medicaid and also create, you know, sometimes individual insurance. But to the more moderates, they're like, well, but you have to like go cut Medicare. We have to make the Medicare trust fund solvent. And so they wanted us to go work on pay fors and Medicare. And, um, and those two groups like won't, like there's not enough of either one to pass anything. You have to do, you have to get both of them on board. I, I actually cared a lot about quality. Like, like our chronic disease outcomes aren't what they should be. Our life expectancy is not what it should be. Our maternal mortality is not what it should be. We saw in COVID like horrible disparities in care that have been structural that haven't been like so. But there wasn't. There's not like a constituency for that stuff. So you can only get that stuff done like make an innovation center in Medicare and like release all the data as part of something that that has those pieces to it. And so the beautiful thing about the Affordable Care Act is that there's a whole bunch of stuff on kind of delivery system reform and on incentive changes that allow all these companies to get started that sort of are between those two things. But we couldn't have passed coverage expansion without a bunch of Medicare reforms, and we certainly couldn't do Medicare reform without, like, a lot of other stuff. Because any time you try to change Medicare, it's described by an opponent as a, as a denial of care to a senior, as a, you know, as a cut. We remember, we remember death panels. <laughs> yeah. and, and even if those cuts are actually like cutting unnecessary stuff, like it's, in, it's, it's someone's income. So there's no, there's no popular cutting to Medicare that exists. It's only negative. And, and so I can write a book about all the stuff, but like when you go cut it, nobody wants it to be cut. And adding more people to the system, you know, perversely too, people who are in the system are like, well, I, it might make me wait longer. I don't know if I want more people covered. Like, like maybe I can't get to my doctor, you know, so you had to put it all together to get just enough good stuff to make everybody say, like, net, net, I'll do it. So I think that was clever. I think I think we did a good job at creating new payment models that people can try. Now, I, I said earlier in the podcast, I wish that there was more penetration of them. But, I mean, today there is, like, you know, and the, and the Trump folks, you know, double down on them. Like, we have lots of variations of risks that you can go into on the primary care side. We have bundled payments for specialists. We have you, know, you can be full cap if you'd like to be in Medicare. Like commercial payers have mostly emulated these models, so like they're available across the system. Like we did a bunch of payment reform that's hard to, that couldn't have happened without some sort of bigger vehicle to do it through. We have certainly covered you know a lot of people, and that's been a wonderful thing. That's why during the COVID recession, like we didn't have a lot of death from people losing coverage. Like they they were able to get covered, so that's been really important. And and so that part's really good. Um, the things that I would change is we were really concerned when we did the Affordable Care Act that we had to pay for it all and that the U.S. government couldn't couldn't support a larger deficit. 
And there was a belief that if our deficit spending went up, that like we'd have high interest rates, that we'd have really low economic growth. That just wasn't right. We learned in the Trump administration that you can cut taxes by $7 trillion and have the economy grow a bunch and that our interest rates don't go up and that like we had more capacity to spend. We spent now, gosh, like about $10 trillion during COVID to stimulate the economy and, and now more money, thankfully, on infrastructure and on Inflation Reduction Act, on climate change. It hasn't had much of an effect on interest rates. Like set aside inflation, like the inflation today is not driven by like all of those policy choices and other things that are driving it, I think. And so knowing that, um, we wouldn't have said that the Affordable Care Act has to cost only $1 trillion, not more. The score of the Affordable Care Act was $960 billion over 10 years. And then our offsets totaled $970 billion. Like, like we paid for the whole thing. If you look over the 10-year period, the pay-fors actually were larger than estimated. So it more than paid for itself. So the, so the ACA has been free from a, from a net spending perspective. The problem with the ACA is that up until COVID, if you were buying a bronze plan, your deductible was pretty high. And so if you weren't very poor and getting a cost-sharing subsidy, you were like, I'm paying like $6,000 and my deductible is $5,000. Like, like it, it didn't feel like you were getting a lot of coverage because you, you paid for the first dollar. You paid a lot, except for preventive care, you paid. Uh, and while you wouldn't go bankrupt from cancer, like you paid a lot. And so it didn't feel like as good a deal as it was to people who were like not very sick. And so I would have extended the subsidy schedules up higher to, on the income spectrum to so that everybody got some premium subsidy. Um, I would have given more generous cost-sharing subsidies so more people got those to make it feel more affordable for the consumer, for sure, on the, on the demand side. On the supply side, I think I would have made some of the risk-based payment models not optional but mandatory. Today, all of the CMS programs are optional. And so you go into them if you feel like you're going to win. But as a result, people who go into them go, you know, are, are self-selected. So I, I would go to mandatory policies. I'm pretty sure that the current team at CMMI and Medicare are thinking that way about having mandatory new payment policies. So you'd move into risk. But, you know, that was something we didn't feel like we had the political capital to do. I wish we did medical malpractice reform because doctors still complain about it every day. Wouldn't have cost very much to put it in. I think we could have come up with a fair system that was equitable to patients and fair to doctors. But there wasn't support from the doctor groups who didn't agree on how to do it, and nobody else cared enough. So I wish we did that too. But net, it's worked I think better than anyone would have expected, <laughs> and even better than I would have predicted because we didn't get to 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 make edits to it. On every other bit of legislation ever passed, you do kind of annual technical corrections to it because of the politics of the ACA. It was written one way and never fixed, hence there were also court cases over it, but like, like it didn't get any refinement. And so it's pretty, it's pretty great that it worked as well as it did. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's a compelling point. Obviously, you see a lot of the impact of it, like in COVID, you know, a decade later, where, you know, coverage was obviously super important. Yeah, I feel like we keep talking about this for a bit, but I want to, you know, I want to make sure we, we get to move into our quick fire round okay. and not take up your entire day. So I guess this, this is a fun one where we're just going to throw some, some quick questions at you um, and, and get your takes. I'll, I'll kind of kick it off. The first question would just be, we, we all go around the digital health circuit. We hear the same kind of themes thrown around. What's kind of one thing that you think is kind of overhyped within digital health right now and one that's like correctly hyped of these of these common themes? Overhyped, I think, is, you know, Medicaid as a as a really good business. I think it's really hard to actually build businesses in Medicaid that work because of the churn of the population, because of the challenges of engaging them, because they have a bunch of things that make it harder for them to engage. Um the payment levels on an absolute basis are so low. There's not risk adjustment. I think it's really hard. Underhyped? Was it another? Was that the second part? Yeah, correctly hype or underhyped, whatever. whatever uh... Underhyped, I think, is how how effective treatments are for mental health care. 
I think people think that people who have severe mental illness or substance use disorder or depression or anxiety, that, that they're sort of have like a really bad diagnosis that can't be managed well. And we have really great evidence-based treatments for most mental health care treatments. They work as well as our cholesterol or our drugs for cholesterol. Like if you deliver access and high quality providers to people in mental health care, you can have them have really, really well-managed lives. This is why you see so many SMI models pop up. Yep. But you can't have them go to Medicaid apparently. So I think it's really hard there. Yeah. So second quick fire is is there a company that's not in the Venrock portfolio that you really admire? I admire Tom Lee. So um we did not invest in One Medical um because I couldn't figure out how he was gonna acquire patients cost effectively. And we didn't invest in Galileo, but I think he's brilliant. So I guess I wish I invested in One Medical and Galileo. Awesome. No, he was, he was a, good, a good podcast guest we had on earlier. Um, you know, I guess you've obviously done a lot on the policy side, you know, um, and there's always political considerations. But I guess if today we gave you a magic wand, you could pass any policy change you'd wanted, what, what would you do? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know too much. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, it would have to be a very powerful magic wand. I think I, I, think I would... Work on cost sharing, except, you know, I would I would redesign insurance to have less cost sharing for patients in it, because I think it's really regressive that, you know, people I don't believe that most diseases are choices that people made or, you know, bad life decisions. I think that actually our genetics got a lot of what happens to us. So I think it's really unfair that if you if you're born with I'll take an easy one, type one diabetes, well, every year you're going to need a bunch of health care and buy a bunch of insulin and say so every year you're going to hit the out of pocket max every single year. And that seems really unfair to me because that money can't go into a, an IRA for your retirement or can't be used for other things. And so I would love to redesign insurance so that we like had less skin in the game for people who have no choice. Yeah. Do you I mean, it's, it is interesting that we have like so many levers for, for, you know, basically preventing unnecessarily consuming care. Right. There's cost sharing. There's prior auths. There's they start interacting with each other in weird ways. But, you know, I guess one of the debates that I find myself getting into with people is the amount that the patient feels directly in terms of, like, what they spend in a given visit, et cetera. It's not, it's not actually what they are paying, right? In a lot of ways, they end up paying indirectly through taxes and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm curious, like, if you end up designing something that reduces the, like, out-of-pocket costs that a patient feels, is it solving it, – it's not – is it solving the issue of just, like, the spend going up on the other side – I mean, we see this even, you know, today where you have catastrophic coverage for like Part D, right? Like people, uh, uh, drug companies will play games to like get you past that cost sharing thing to then have someone else foot the rest of the bill, right? So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just curious, like if is cost sharing the issue, sir? I think I would love to work on redesigning the way a health insurance benefit product is designed because I don't know any person that wants to go actually experience healthcare. Like it is not fun. It is often painful. Like nobody would prefer to be sick. It's just you or, or have pain or have any disease. When we were getting involved with doctor on demand, insurance companies would be like, well, if we make it really easy to see a doctor, people will just go see them all the time. And that's totally not true. Like there's almost no like bored people that want to go talk to a doctor. And so I would try to redesign the model, the way the insurance product is designed. So that effectively things where you have no control and need care, you're not paying a lot for because like you should get that. And things where there's judgment or elasticity, like we can then think about what the right amount is then for you to pay for those things. But nobody's thought a lot about elasticity in healthcare demand. And I feel like inelastic things that are not your choice, you shouldn't be punished for. And, and so I would play around with that a redesigned insurance product to be like much more fair 
and also understandable because nobody like nobody knows what is coinsurance and deductible and copay and out of network benefit like it's it's so complicated and, and nobody and then there's the things that you mentioned like there's prior authorizations and you and like like you know like i i just, i try to simplify it dramatically would be, I guess, what I try to do from a policy perspective. Yeah. I've become the person who gets texted by their friends being like, what's a prior auth and why do I need this? And yeah. And, it, <laughs> and, when, you're, and when you're in a certain, when you're in the micro circumstance of having to wait for somebody to decide if you need something that you know you need, it's a pretty terrible thing because like it's delaying care. You know, you need it. It is going to get approved. But a lot of work happened to get it approved. And like, you know, it's it's a, it's a SLA system. Well, Bob, this, this did not disappoint. I mean, it's incredible just to jump around a bunch of different topics with you. You're obviously as, as knowledgeable as it gets on this stuff. I'm sure folks are, are, are wanting to learn more about you, about, you know, Venrock. What's the best way for them to do that? And for, for folks that love podcasts, I want to make sure you get a chance to, uh, <laughs> to, to plug yours as well, which uh, we, we both listen to. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, well, you can read, I guess you can read more about me. I have a blog called, you know, Better Healthcare Sooner. Uh, you can get to it from my bio page on Venrock. If you click email me on my Venrock page, it will come to me and I will answer your email. So it's how to get a hold of me. And, um, and you can listen to me talk to people like you on our podcast. <laughs> people far, far more successful than Nikhil and I. We, 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 we get to talk to you and you get to talk to other people like you. Periodically. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but no, thank you for the privilege of getting to speak with you and for a really fun conversation. This was great. Yeah, this was great. Thanks, Thanks again. That was Vital Signs. A huge thanks to Bob for uh, just an awesome conversation. Definitely stay tuned next time. I'll be doing a follow-up on a few pieces I've written on tech and pharma R&D and healthcare data. Uh, and as part of the series, we're, we're having Arif Nathu come on, the CEO of Komodo Health, a really interesting healthcare data company. So we'll look forward to seeing everyone then. <laughs>